Amen. How fun is it to see all the students up here worshiping, leading us? I know there's a crew over at Cactus and Nick and the guys are taking care of you over there. So good to have them there. I know my family up at Northridge. It's good to miss, miss you guys, but good to be down here with you down south, south here at Shea. And I think we even had kids over in the chapel livening it up over there. So good to have all of them there. And just fun to be a part of this intergenerational mission that we have here as a church as we love and care for each other. And so excited to see that. And I hope you guys know, I had a chance to work in student ministry for a long time. Uh, and I know sometimes it's easy to paint a, a negative picture of the culture coming up behind us. But man, let me tell you, God is doing some awesome things through our student ministry here, through our children's ministry here. And if you as a family, you can clap just a second. As a family, <laughs> as a family of Scottsdale Bible Church, can, you, can we just commit for the next three weeks to be praying like crazy for VBS? That's gonna be going on. So many kids are gonna discover Jesus for the first time at this place and up at Northridge. So just be praying. If you can't serve, you can't volunteer, man, you can get on your knees and you can pray and pray that the Holy Spirit would move in the lives of our kids because God's doing some great stuff in and amongst our student and children ministry and we're excited to be a part of it here at, at SBC. Uh, yeah, you can clap, there you go, perfect. Uh, well, my name's Kevin Ewell, I'm one of the pastors here. I happen to be a, the pastor of a great community of people up north at Northridge and we're gonna continue uh, our study in this thing called the battle within, as we wrestle with some of the hard things that are going on inside of us. And today, uh, we're gonna tackle this thing called shame. And uh, shame is a, is a heavy subject. It is something that I wrestle with uh, each and every day. And so we're gonna get into some deep, heavy stuff. But before we do that, maybe a little levity and some fun, but you'll see the point in just a little bit. So I wanna take you back to a young Kevin Ewell. I was 18 years old. I was a senior at Horizon High School. It was 1997, and uh, that was all the rage back then. I have a senior in Horizon High School. And like any good senior and any time in any school across the country, you get together with your group of friends and you say, hey, what do we want to leave as a little imprint of us on our school in the thing called the senior prank? And so we gathered my friends together after a half day of school, and we're all in my friend's living room. We're going, okay, what would be fun? Seniors before us had done a couple of things and we began to think, oh, this would be great, this would be great. Well, that would get us arrested. That's probably not good, let's not do that. And so we came up with this idea. We said, hey, what would it look like if we let a bunch of chickens go all around the campus? I mean, how awesome would it be if you come out of your math class and you, you look around and a chicken goes running by and like Rocky Balboa, the security got to chase these things around to catch them. I thought, that's genius. So we pooled our money together. We got a little handful of cash and we went down to a local farm. We said, hey, we'd like to buy some chickens. And the guy goes, great, I got some chickens for you right over here. Free range chickens, look at them running around. Go, all right, man, perfect, how many can we get? He said, well, for what you got, you can get two. I <laughs> thought, eh, kind of wanted more than that. You know, what else you got? He says, well, I got these egg laying chickens over here. You can probably get eight of those. Eh. What's the most we can get? And he goes, well, I got these chickens over here. They don't lay eggs anymore, and I'll give them to you for two bucks a piece. We said, perfect. Here's our cash. And we loaded these birds in the back of my friend's truck. They were all bound together because they were very old and egg-laying chickens that hadn't moved around much. Pertinent information that I wish I would have known later on. <laughs> so we pull up to Horizon High School with a bucket full of birds in the back of my friend's truck. And someone had tipped off the police because there were three police officers in their cars out front. Now I'm, a, I'm an upstanding individual. I don't want any trouble. And so I walk up to one of the officers and I, he rolls his window down. I go, hey, officer, I'm sorry, but uh, can I ask you a question? Would I be breaking any laws if I let some chickens go on the campus? 
And he looked at me and said, live chickens? I go, yeah, they're, they're alive. And he just laughed and said, man, I can't think of any. Bang, that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> Off to my friend's truck. I grab eight birds in this hand, bound by their feet, and four birds in this hand. My friend Mark grabs the same, and we start to walk up to the campus. You gotta cross the parking lot, and then there's a big outdoor basketball court before you get to the doors of the school. So here I am with my 12 birds, I'm walking up, and we get to about maybe 50 yards away from the door, when whoop, whoop, here comes the safety officer of the school in his little golf cart. Where are you boys going? Gotta get these to the biology lab, sir, I'm sorry. And so off we're trying to get in there. He's not having it. So he starts chasing us, and me and Mark just go, scatter! And so Mark goes one way, and I go this way, and he follows me. And I'm running with all that I got. I was fleeter of foot back then, but I'm also carrying 12 birds. He begins to catch up to me in his golf cart, and so he's about 15 feet away from me, and I decide, okay, I gotta, I gotta lighten the load a little bit. And so as I'm running, mid-run, I let go of these eight birds up in the air. Now, keep in mind they're birds. And my working knowledge of birds is they have feathers and God created them to fly. And so I throw these things up in the air thinking they will safely flutter back to the ground. I may as well have thrown eight bags of flour up in the air because these things went up and just do, 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 do. And they all hit the ground all over the place and they all kind of flop up and then they just sit there <laughs> bobbing their heads. They don't move, they don't walk, they don't run, they don't do anything. And I'm realizing I got ripped off. I don't know what's going on here. And so I make my way into the parking lot. I let the other four chickens go in some unfortunately locked, unlocked cars. And I make my way out. <laughs> and here there are, there's eight birds here and there's about four more that Mark let go over here. And we just wait for the festivities to begin and out comes the mm, sadistic under and junior classmen class. And they come out and they don't think, ah, chickens, that's funny. Apparently they think, ah, oh, chickens, soccer. And they start kicking these things all over the place. And much to my dismay, many of these chickens lost their lives that day. And it was terrible. Terrible enough that every single news station in Arizona made it their lead story that night. So three, 10, five, 12, all of them out there. Mike Watkiss, overdramatic, just pulls a chicken carcass out of the garbage and uses the word massacre and slaughter about eight different times. And I realized, man, this went sideways quick. I'm in a lot of trouble. Ended up getting suspended for a period of time. But man, we made big news. We were on Jay Leno. They didn't, I wasn't, but the story was on Jay Leno. Jamie's favorite sinner, Howard Stern, did a whole thing on his radio station one day. I mean, it was, it was all the rage. But there were some serious protests and a lot of heat came upon me. And I tell you that story to tell you this. Up until six months ago, I'm gonna reveal some of the vanity of me. Up until six, six months ago, if you Googled the name Kevin Ewell, you know what would come up? This is, this is the article that would come up, number one for Kevin Ewell. UPC rallies for hens at Horizon High School. It's a whole story about something I did when I was 18 years old. That is my legacy on Google. Not, you know, led hundreds of missions trips and discipled children and, and, and raised his kids up in the Lord, married to his wife. None of what I have done is on there. Something I did, one stupid decision I made 22 plus years ago is what I am known for when you Google me on the internet. And I thought, man, how it's silly, it's dumb, I get it. But as we get to roll into this topic of shame, here's, where I want, here's what I want you to connect the dots a little bit on. Sometimes that's how shame operates with us. 
We can do a hundred things right. We can do a million things right for the Lord. We can, be, we can do everything that we've got in our power through the power of the Holy Spirit to be upstanding individuals and to love the people around us and to follow the Lord with all we've got. But for some of us, we can't let go of one or two dumb decisions, bad things that happen to us or to others from our past. We can't let go of them. And they begin to define us. And though we may accomplish a lot of things and though the world may see a lot of things in us, for whatever reason, Satan puts his thumb of oppression upon us and we define ourselves by our failures, by our past. That's how shame works. That's what makes it so dangerous. Here are two definitions of shame I want us to work with as we roll into today. The first one is just a literal definition. It's a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. That's the, that's the definition of shame. You know you did wrong, and so then therefore you feel this humiliation or distress that wells up in you. Here's the difference between shame and guilt, because I hear them used together often. Guilt, guilt is a feeling you get when you did something wrong or perceived that you did something wrong. Shame is a feeling that your whole self is wrong, and it may not be related to a specific behavior or event. You see the difference? Guilt is, I screwed up, I can own that. Shame is, I screwed up, I now am that. And I define myself as such. That's why it's such a heavy topic. That's why it's such an incredible tool in the toolbox of Satan because he takes our failure and he distorts our view of God's grace. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. And he begins to redefine who we are through a sick, twisted lens of shame. And so if you're in here today, and this is at all a part of your world, man, I'm gonna be praying for you and join me as we journey through this. If you're not, if you sit there and you go, man, I never really struggle with this, chances are good you've got loved ones that do. So what might it look like for you to empathize a little bit and to lean into some of this uh, as we roll through this time in God's word. So let me pray for us, and then we'll continue on in our study. God, we thank you so much uh, for who you are. And God, for who we are to you. And so God, as I have been praying and will keep praying, I pray that you would meet us right where we are at. God, for every one of us, myself included, uh, God, that wrestles with this, that has a hard time believing at times that I am who you say I am. And God, I would rather believe what the world and the enemy feeds me. And the shame that comes on the heels of that, God, I pray you would meet us in that place. Pray for those online, those in this room, Northridge, Cactus, Chapel, God, that you would meet us in this space. And as we leave these rooms, these venues, our time in your word, God, that we would actually envision ourselves leaving whatever it is that's causing that shame to overwhelm us in this place, giving it over to you and then moving ahead as your beautiful sons and daughters. So God, meet us in that place. God, we ask big things of you, but you are a big God. So meet us there. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, we're going to be in, in maybe a familiar passage to some, maybe not for others. It's going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, let me set it up for you so you kind of get the, the context of what Paul is taking us to here as he deals with this idea of shame. Paul wrote an incredible letter to a church in Corinth that was very messed up. Okay, this church, this church is the epitome of dysfunctional church. It's the whole book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, they're getting drunk on communion wine. They are, they got a guy in their church that they're celebrating who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, which is kind of weird and gross. And like, there's just a bunch of weird things going on at this church. And Paul writes this pretty heavy-handed, scathing letter to them that says, stop it, quit. 
And then he writes 2 Corinthians. And you get this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul begins to say, hey, look, I called you on some pretty heavy stuff and now I want to praise you because you didn't just take that and go, eh, let's wallow in shame or eh, let's reject it. But you actually did something with it. He's gonna use this word repent. You owned it and then you turned from it and now I wanna praise you for that. And so that's what we get. That's all what's taken place beforehand. He's kind of explaining all of that. And then we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And look at the setup that we have here. Two different opportunities for us when we own what we've done wrong. First one is this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So two opportunities here. Corinthian church, I confronted you on your wrongdoing. I, you, I, I put it right in your face. Here's the mirror. Here's all the things you're doing wrong. Now what are you going to do? Same opportunity for us. Because it, it doesn't matter who you are in this room or any other campus. You can look around the room and everybody's got something. We've all got our stuff. So now the question is, what do we do with it? Paul gives two options. He says, look, there's, there's godly grief. It leads to salvation. Or there's worldly grief. It leads to death. So let me unpack these two, and certainly under the umbrella of shame, let's take a look at what this looks like. Here, here's worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief produces shame, defining yourself by what you did. I am that. And ultimately what that means is that you then begin to reject God's grace. God looks down at you and goes, man, I love you. I am for you. And you go, God, I can't have any of that because I am this. Whatever that is, these are the people, uh, and I've made this, <laughs> I don't know why I said these people. Uh, I am this person. That makes statements like this. Well, God could never. If the, if the answer to, if the finish of that statement, God could never, is anything other than not love you, it's not true. But that's how I see things sometimes. Well, you don't understand. God, God could never forgive me. Uh, God, could, God could never truly see me as his beloved son given all of these things in my life. God could, God could never forgive me the way that he's forgiven others because they've got a, a, a different relationship with him than I do and so therefore God could never. And I begin to reject the grace of God and define myself by whatever it is that I've done or I'm doing or this, this, this realm of shame that's over me. I reject God's grace. And then ultimately ends with this. I begin to redefine myself by my failure. Okay, I'm ashamed, I'm guilty, I did it. But instead of running to God, I turn, I wallow in my shame, I define myself by my shame, and now this shame spiral just begins. And we go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change. But then you don't change, and then you just go down deeper. This is gonna shift, I'm not gonna do this, this is gonna be, and we try, and we try in our flesh and our will, and we don't make it, and so then psh, we get deeper and deeper and deeper, and we just keep spiraling down. And there are moments where it just becomes so overwhelming that you even come into a setting like this and we sing songs like Amazing Grace or anything that has to do with Christ paying at all, and we can't, even, we can't even cognitively understand, oh, that song is about me and my sin. We look around and we go, that's about everybody else because I'm in a separate subgroup of the unforgivable, unlovable. That's a rejection of God's grace. That's what worldly grief is. That's what worldly grief is. But look at what godly grief is. 
Godly grief, as Paul spells it out, there's a conviction that takes place. There's a movement of the Holy Spirit in your soul. You begin to look at what's taking place around you and you go, okay, that's not quite resonating with me. I know that's wrong. All of a sudden you confess and own your guilt in this conviction state and you do something very different. You repent. Instead of going, this is who I am and so I'm gonna wallow in it, you go, this is not who I am. This was a decision I made that was not good or wrong done to me or wrong I did to somebody else. And so in this moment, I'm gonna put this here and I'm gonna walk away and I'm gonna let Jesus do what Jesus came to do in that space. And you move, you repent. And then you get this beautiful picture and that is you are restored. Not restored in the fact that God has ever left you, but you are restored in the fact that you can now really begin to believe you are who God says you are. Because between these two, there is a weird twisted lens that Satan puts up in our mind that prevents me, at least prevents me, from seeing and believing I am who God says I am. And yet if I can repent, if I can walk away and I can begin to live in the grace of God, all of a sudden, I begin to believe, no, I am God's son. And I'm not God's son because of what I have done or what I haven't done, but I'm a beloved son of God most high because of what Jesus Christ did on my behalf, period. That is a whole different way in which to live life and to live in relationship with the Father. So sit in this room, look around this room, own your stuff, we've all got it. We're gonna hear that in just a little bit. What do you do with it? Crossroads. We can either own it Take it to the Father and go, God, here it is. I want to turn from it and move on. Or we can sit, define ourselves by it, and we can walk in each and every week into this place or any other world in which we live in, feeling this definition of I'm defined by my past and by my failure. One leads to salvation, the other leads to death. But we got to own that and make our choice. So I'm gonna share an example with you and I'm a little, a little anxious about it because I think I've shared it with you before. I know I've shared it with some of you before, but for me, when I heard this and I began to wrap my mind around it, it completely changed my understanding of who God is and who I am to him as my son, as his son. Completely shifted it. In a, in, a, in a weird theological thing for me, it allowed me to grab on to this beauty of God's grace and for God's forgiveness. And so I wanna share it with you. If you've heard it before, I apologize, but man, if you remember it, it's because it's got the opportunity to be memorable. I don't know how many of you guys have had the incredible privilege of being around uh, parents as their kid is just learning to walk. You ever been around this before? I have six children. I've got to watch this happen six times over. Never more powerful than when my oldest daughter, Maddie, when she was just a little one. I've needed to watch it multiple times, whether it be through video or being live in person with people that have experienced this. A mom and dad are gathered around and a little toddler with his giant head and his huge diaper just stand up and hold onto the table. And they walk their way around the table or they push that little cart around. Never before have they taken steps on their own. And then all of a sudden, he sees something from across the room and he just lets go of that table. And on his little wobbly legs, he sits there. And the mom and dad go, oh, and they get on the edge of their seat. He's gonna do it. He's gonna, let's see if he does it. And that little one just, boom, and then down he goes on his huge diaper, falls. What does every parent do? They go, he did it. Oh, he did it. And they run over and they scoop that little guy up and they throw him up in the air and they catch him and they squeeze him close and they hug him and they go, oh, you're doing it. 
And they look him right in the eye and they go, I'm so proud of you. And the little toddler doesn't know what just happened, but his eyes get all big and he's like, ah. And the mom and dad are like, yes, do it again. And they put that little guy back down on his feet and they sit there with their arms out. And they go, come on, you can do it. And the little guy, and down he goes again. Yeah, you're doing it. And they scoop him up and they hold him close and they encourage him and they encourage him and they encourage him. Keep moving. You're doing it. My question for you is this. For anybody in this room, anybody that's ever breathed air on this planet, we're not a lot different than that toddler with our, with our father. We are going to take steps. Five, six, two, one. But we are inevitably going to fall. That's the reality of our broken, sinful world. You will inevitably fall at some point. In that moment, when you're on the ground and your father runs over to you and wants to encourage you and remind you whose kid you are, wants to scoop you up and throw you in the air and hold you close and look you in the eye and go, you did it, now let's keep going. That's our opportunity to receive that moment or would you reject it? Godly grief is to put your hands up and go, God, thank you. I admit that I fell. I've, fall, I've fallen. I'm not perfect. And the God of the universe scoops you up, tosses you in the air, squeezes you, looks you right in the eye and goes, come on, let's keep going and puts you back down on your feet. And you may toddle 10 steps or two, but the cycle repeats over and over and over again. Worldly grief is to paint a completely different picture, a picture that I have never seen happen ever, and I pray that I never do. Never have I seen a young toddler with his mom and dad watching. They got the cameras out. They're filming it. Grandma and grandpa are going to be so proud. Kid take three steps and fall. Never have I seen a parent go, failure. You can't even walk. What's the matter with you? You are a failure. It doesn't happen. I don't do that. Why do we think the unconditionally loving, perfect in every way, sustainer and creator of the universe who looks down at us and says, I gave everything for you because I love you. Why do we think he's capable of that sort of reaction? When you've walked and you fall right back into habitual sin or bad way of thinking, or you make another decision that hurts you or hurts others, why do we not think the God of the universe who loves us and died for us is looking down at us ready to scoop us up in his arms and go, hey, it's okay. Put you back on your feet and say, come on, let's keep going. You see, how you view God and how he views you, that's what we're talking about here. And if you have any picture of God other than one that wants to love, care for, and encourage you, and I think you've missed it. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, all of you guys that want to abuse God's grace and you hear that and take that as a license to go live a sinful life, man, you missed it. You missed it. He's also a just God, a God of wrath, and that might come. For all of us wrestling with this idea of shame, feeling like we don't measure up, feeling like we aren't who God says we are and we're not allowing the God of the universe to define us, man, hold on to that picture. Hold on to that mental image. The next time you fall, Maybe even in this moment as you sit here today and you go, but yeah, Kevin, you don't understand. You don't understand what I, I don't. God does. And you know what he's doing? He's walking over to you right now with his arms out and a big grin on his face, ready to scoop you up and put you back on your feet and say, come on, let's keep going. What you do with that 
That's on us. We've got to decide what we're going to do with that. Now, here's the impact of shame. If we continue to live in shame, first one is this. Impact of shame. We, it creates shallow relationships. It creates shallow relationships. What do I mean by that? At least for me in my world. The moments when I'm in heavy shame, you know what it does? I have to do one of two things. Either put a wall up and keep everybody at bay or get really good at wearing a mask and pretending I am something that I'm not. And so I spend my life deflecting and asking questions about everybody else. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. How are you? How's this going? And what can I do to get the attention off of me and onto you? Because I don't want anybody to know what's going on in here. Because if you did, you would reject me. And I can't handle that. And so I put on this mask or put up this wall. And some of us are great at wearing masks. But the problem with mask wearing, when we put them on and we've got to be something or not, is it's exhausting. And sometimes in the deep, dark recesses of my soul, I will spend time late at night when I can't sleep going, man, so-and-so this and so-and-so that. But the problem is that's not even me. That's the mask that I'm wearing. They're rejecting the mask I'm wearing. What if they really knew me? And now we spiral into a, a cycle of shame. But it creates shallow relationships. You can't be real with anybody. You can't be honest with anybody. And so you keep everyone at bay. And we roll through life being unknown, and that's dangerous. It's not the body of Christ was meant to be. Here's the second thing it does. It causes self-hatred. You want to get to its deepest, darkest place in this idea of shame? It, it turns into self-hatred. I did it again. I hate myself. No one could ever love me. And right down this spiral. For myself, it can get to really dark things at times. Why? Because I don't believe the love of God, because I look at my father reaching over at me at the times that I fail, and I go, oh, you couldn't love me. You're going to walk right past me, and therefore, I hate myself because of what I've done, and self-hatred is on the heels of shame. This is a dangerous place to live, especially when you're isolated because you have no deep relationships, and ultimately, we talked about it a little bit already. It's a rejection of God's grace. It's the God of the universe saying, what more could I have done for you? And us looking, and if I'm honest, me looking and going, I don't know, but something, because I'm unlovable. And we reject the grace of God. At least, maybe not in a salvific sense. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, I don't think that, I'm not saying, here, don't hear me say this. This is not a rejection of your salvation. But this is rejecting the beauty of what it means to live as God's child, to experience the grace, the love, the forgiveness of God. We push it off, and in some sick, twisted way, we think we've got to serve our own penance as we wallow in this, this moment of shame instead of just receiving the love of God. This is, where, this is where shame goes. This is why I think Paul would say it leads to death. Here's what the impact of accepting God's grace, this impact of conviction. You own your stuff. I made a mistake, but you know what? Let me take that mistake. Let me dump that at the feet of the cross of Jesus Christ, a mistake that he came and died for, and let me move on. And all of a sudden, I can be in relationship with you, and I can be as honest and real as I want to be. Because at the end of the day, here, here's, and you've heard me say this a bunch, at the end of the day, if I'm honest and real with you, and you get up from that cup of coffee, or you walk away from that lunch or our time together, and you leave going, man, that is one messed up dude. I don't ever want to hang out with that guy again. If I'm good with the Father, at the end of the day, I don't care. Because you know what? You know who's not going to sit on the judgment seat and judge me when all is over? Any of you. The only one that does 
This is the God of the universe. My loving father that's running over to me with his arms out ready to scoop me up, throw me in the air, put me back on my feet and say, let's keep going. And when I can live in that space, and all of a sudden it gives me the opportunity to be honest and real with those around me. Not in a way where I just wanna, you know, vomit all my stuff all over them, but in a way that I can be known and, and know others in a deep, intimate way. And all of a sudden this beautiful thing called the body of Christ comes around. And when I'm down, there's people that pick me up. And when they're down, I'm there to pick them up and put my arm around their shoulder and go, hey, let's keep going. That's the beauty of living in this idea of God's grace and God's conviction. The second thing is it brings, it brings a total confidence, but a confidence in Christ, not a confidence in self. Here's the danger of today is that some of you can hear this and go, okay, God, I want to accept your grace and you want to leave it in this room and you're going to leave from this place, but something's going to happen in the next 48 to, to 72 hours. A habit's going to be repeated. Whatever's caused the shame might trigger itself and come back because Satan would love nothing more than to put that thumb of oppression and keep it on. He'll stir it up. And so something will happen. And in that moment, you're right back. You fell. Opportunity. What are you going to do? If you think it's about you, Satan wins. If you can truly understand, God, I can't do any of this. I need your Holy Spirit to do it all. The only way the only way I'm gonna be able to be and remember and own who I am to you is if your Holy Spirit works. Until we get to that place, we're trying in our flesh. When we succeed, we get self-righteous and proud. Look what I did. And when we fail, we follow back into shame. But if we can truly surrender it to the Lord and go, God, you gotta do what only you can do. And then God shows up and God does what only God can do. You know what you don't find yourself doing? Bragging about yourself. You know what you do find? bragging about God. You'll never believe what God did. I wrestled with this for 40 years. God showed up, began to cause a healing in my heart and my soul. It's unbelievable. God gets the glory, not you. That's the way it's meant to be. And when we fall, and we will fall, we're going to hear that in just a second. When we fall, can we be quick to confess, to leave that at the feet of the cross and go, God, come back. I need you for everything. And God meets us in that place. And then it causes restoration with the Father. Again, not in a, in a God has left us. You guys remember that weird image of, of uh, Neil following Jamie across the stage? Like you can never go anywhere without God. I, I'm not talking about that. It was weird. Let's own it. But uh, it's a beautiful picture. God's not leaving you. So when I say restored with the Father, it's not God going, okay, now I'll love you. It's God chasing you around with his arms open wide, and you're that little toddler, and instead of getting on your feet and walking, you're deciding to crawl away from God, but God's gonna keep following you, and then he's gonna scoop you up when you're done running. When you own your stuff, you confess it to the Father and go, God, do what only you can do, and he picks you up, he holds you close, he looks you in the eye and goes, I'm so ready to watch you keep going, and he puts you on your feet, and now we're rolling. Are we there? So what do we do with this? I'm gonna end with, with one passage and then we're going to end our time today in communion. But I want to look at a passage. It's a familiar passage to a lot of us. But we love verse 9. So I'm going to give us verse 8 and 10 first. And then we're going to look at verse 9. It's from 1 John chapter 1. Here's what 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 and 10 say. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, past tense, we make him, being God, a liar, and his word is not in us. 
So anybody in here, let's, let's bring this back. Anybody in here that goes, man, this has been a waste. I don't deal with shame at all. Great. Praise God. Thank God for that. Come talk to me afterwards and let, help me. You can shoulder the load with me. But for everybody in this room, everybody online, everybody watching all over the place, you need to hear and understand this. We all got stuff. We are all sinners. And though you may look around a room like this and go, not as bad as him, not as bad as her, not as bad. Oh, yep, definitely better than. Oh man, he's way more righteous than I. And you put yourself on some weird pecking order of your sinfulness versus everyone else's morality. Just stop. Shame loves to lurk in that area. I surround myself with some really good godly men. It's going to get real hard for me to feel bad about myself. Just stop. Look around the room. Every person you see, guess what? They got their stuff. They got their bag of stuff, their bag of sin, stuff they do, stuff that they do. And right now, if they could empty it before you and you would see some of the stuff in it, it would blow you away. Oh my, I never knew. Of course not. They're hiding it. That's what shame does. But we all got our stuff. Every person has their bag of sin. What do we do with it? That's what matters. Here's the beauty of verse nine. Here's the beauty of verse nine. Look at what it says. Coming off the heels of we all have sin and we all have sinned, current and past. If, another if, if we confess our sins, he, that's God, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm asked to do one thing in this verse. One thing and then the promise of forgiveness, purity, from God Almighty is, is promised to me. And what am I asked to do? Confess. I'm asked to take my bag full of junk and go, God, here it is. Here it is. And there's nothing in your bag that the God of the universe is going, oh, I didn't know that was in there. He knows it all. You've deceived yourself in thinking maybe nobody knows. He knows. He knows what you're carrying around. And yet as a loving father, he's following you around with his arms out, waiting for you to stop. Throw that bag down so he can scoop you up, put you back on your feet and go, come on, let's keep going. So what do you do with it? There are some of you here, maybe you hear this for the hundredth time, maybe it's the first time. I need you to understand a couple of things. One, the God of the universe, man, he loves you. He loves all of us. He is madly in love with you and longs for you to be his son or daughter. But you and I, we've got a problem. We just read about it. We have sin. Currently, past, and guess what? There's a boatload coming in the future. It's just any time we choose to do anything that, that is against the Lord, we choose to do it in our own self. We do it all the time. God's word says, look, because you're a sinner, there's an opportunity. Put your faith in Christ or to reject God. Put your hand up. Give God the Heisman and stiff him away. But that's the most important decision you could make. Because to reject God's grace, we're gonna look at this later, maybe this summer, God says, look, the, the, the future for you is eternal separation from me. Hell is the word used in the Bible. But it's like a toddler that's fallen. You can lift your little arms up and say, God, I confess that I am not perfect, that I have made a mistake. But I believe your son, Jesus Christ, he was who he said he was, that he died for my sins. 
And in this moment, in this place, I wanna leave my sack of garbage at the feet of your cross and I wanna grab onto Jesus with all that I've got and give my life to you. In that moment, the God of the universe scoops you up, holds you close, and you become his son or his daughter. But it's not through going to church. It's not through jumping through hoops. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. So what you do with Jesus is the most important decision you could make. So if you're here today and you wanna put your faith in Christ for the very first time, I'm gonna encourage you, come talk to me. I'll be right up front. If you're in this room, come talk to me. I'll be right up front. I know Nick will be at Cactus. I know Tanner will be available up at Northridge. I know Ray would love to talk to you over at the chapel. And if you don't know, Ryan Heath is doing an incredible job online. He would love to meet you right where you're at. Not to join this church, not to make it weird, but to be a brother, put their arm around you, welcome you into the family of God and just pray with you. That's all we're asking. For the rest of us, we're gonna, we're gonna pray in just a moment and then we're gonna spend some time singing a song to reflect on and then we're gonna go to the communion table. If you, like me, are in here and you have wrestled with this whole idea of shame, if there's been any part of you that you have allowed yourself or the world to define you as anything other than God's beloved son or his daughter, can you just, as they play this song at all of our campuses, this song is played, can you somehow just paint a mental picture of you walking up to the feet of the cross, emptying out whatever it is you need to leave there, putting it there, and then as we take communion together as a family, can you let 1 John 1.9 be true of you? You've confessed your sins. You've laid them at his feet. Now let him do what only he can do, and that is he is faithful. He is just. And he forgives and makes you clean and pure. When you walk out of this place, can you pray and continue to pray like crazy that this oppression of shame, this, this attack from the enemy no longer has a hold on you because you are who God says you are, his beloved son or daughter. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll close our time that way. Let me pray. God, we thank you. God, I thank you for, for who you are to me and yet, God, I confess there are far too many days that I forget what it means to be your kid. And so God, I pray for those times when I'm attacked and shame overwhelms me, God, that you would remind me of these passages. God, remind me of the promises that I recite over and over and over again to myself. God, don't let them just be knowledge in my head, but let them be promises I believe in my heart. God, I pray the same for my brothers and sisters here and all of our campuses. God, meet us in this place. As I've been praying all week, I pray your Holy Spirit would work, he would move, he would do something even now as we reflect on this and we get ready to, to take communion together as a family. God, meet us in this place. Do what only you can do. And God, we will thank you in advance for anything that happens. We love you, thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.